I do have to say that the level of sophistication in DeFi is far less from what you see in a traditional in the traditional finance structure. But I think it's important to sort of point out the stark differences in how a similar situation like this, a bank run or a financial panic, would play out in, in DeFi. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hello there. Good morning. It's a really boring weekend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like Monday because you I basically worked the entire weekend <laughs> trying to keep up with what was happening. <laughs> Between that and the time the change. Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, and the, yeah, right, exactly. Just think about it, you had one last hour to keep up with a fast pacing movement because of the clock shift. <laughs> I wonder why any of this, like, why is it that it all, all this stuff happens right after Friday? Like, it's almost intentional. Before our Monday podcast, you actually see a lot of these new activities. But yeah, pretty exciting weekend. I, I don't think I've seen Jason this excited ever <laughs> to be on the podcast. So Energized, energized maybe? Is well, this the word? <laughs> I, I, think that, I think the real thing of it is, it's not that you're excited for anything happening. You're just questioning, how do you keep up? You know, we want to make sure that we're understanding uh, the pace of, of news flow and, and how that's resulting in um, economic terms. In times like this, you learn a lot. And, and I'm excited to learn. I'm not excited about this, uh, the, um, the volatility that we're seeing. But I, I do think that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a whole lot of, education that's going to come as a result of the news of the past week. But um, you know, before we dive into that stuff, I think we've got some, some other things that we should be excited and, and happy to celebrate. So Parth, uh, what, have, what have you been up to lately? Yeah, it's been, it's been a long two weeks. So I was out um, for East Denver and uh, I can give you sort of a TLDR of East Denver. What were some key trends that I saw? But uh, so each Denver was outstanding, like it barely felt like the bear market. So the spirits were still high um, compared to the bear market editions in 2018, 2019, uh, where you mostly had students and hackers come in <laughs> trying to look for jobs, right? This year, it was completely different. You had close to 13,000 people come in um, and you had multiple satellite conferences in Denver. So, so it was a really great experience. Um, they had something called as WalletCon which was the first conference ever dedicated to wallets. And that's where they announced uh, EIP 4337 going live. So that was really fun. Yeah, and, and Parth, last week, I I promised that we would put you on the spot and make you give a technical deep dive of that this week, but we're not gonna have time based on what's happened since then. So 
consider yourself off the hook on that one. <laughs> um, but we will come back. I do think it's worthwhile, like having a deep dive. And I know we want to talk a little bit um, more about wallets maybe later on if we have time. Um, but, yeah, account, account abstraction is not going away. So I think we <laughs> we we have time to do a, a full session on that. Yeah. In, in part, do you do anything else while you're out there? <laughs> yeah, so I have, um, I do have a personal sort of milestone. So I, I proposed to my girlfriend, so I'm engaged now. So that's, so before coming on the podcast two weeks ago, I was, I, I wasn't and now I'm, I'm a fiance. So that's exciting. <laughs> the that's good, awesome. good, new, exciting phase of life. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> Um, all right. So, so that's a nice happy note <laughs> uh, before we jump into the, you know, the news of the week. So, um, a couple of things we want to, we want to cover today. So obviously, um, what everyone is talking and thinking about is just what's happening, um, you know, with uh, Silicon Valley bank and with Silvergate and signature bank. So we're going to talk, you know, spend the majority of the time today talking about that. Um, but at the end, I think we also want to talk, um, a bit about, um, some wallet announcements from Coinbase, um, and, and some other announcements on that front. So with that, Jason, a lot has happened um, and it's moving at uh, light speed. So do you mind just providing just like a, an overview of, I'll call it, say, the last few days around kind of what we've seen happen on the banking front? Yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that. And it, again, I think there's so much that is fluid. So when we talk about these uh, events of the past few days, we have to keep in mind that they've been happening very quickly. There's a lot of information flowing. Uh, Not all of it on different channels have been uh, verified. So um, we always talk about do your own research in the crypto space. Um, What I'm going to do now is sort of share some some summaries of of things that I've read and and picked up from other uh, sources. So um, over the past week, we've seen essentially three banks that provide services to crypto companies as well as to their other business clientele, uh, they've, they've been shuttered. So the first was Silvergate um, and Silvergate announced a voluntary unwind, uh, I believe it was last Wednesday on March 8th. This was in response to um, pressure that they were seeing in terms of uh, liquidity. So Silvergate was the first to, to be shuttered then on Friday, we saw intraday shutdown of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and that was shuttered by the California state regulator, uh, which is the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. And the FDIC stepped in Friday to take over uh, the operations of Silicon Valley Bank. Now, many people uh, may not have been familiar with Silicon Valley Bank prior to this news cycle, but it was the 16th largest lender in the U.S., um, and basically, it faced a run on the bank that was a result of people who are depositors or entities that are depositors seeking to uh, withdraw funds at a pretty rapid rate. So uh, as of December 31st, the bank had over uh, $209 billion um, of assets and about $175 billion of, of deposits. And a lot of people are talking about Silicon Valley Bank being um, in the liquidity crunch because it held a lot of its assets in longer dated bonds or uh, treasury bonds that they may have experienced an unrealized loss because the bonds were trading a little bit below par, uh, in part because the interest rate environment has shifted. So if you have a longer duration bond, 
um, and you have a certain coupon rate on that bond. And then the shorter dated maturities start trading or being issued with higher coupons, we see a, a yield curve inversion. And you know that's a big thing to keep in mind is that the spread between the two-year treasuries and the 10-year treasury yields was actually inverted by about 100 basis points last week. So um, in this case, Sil- uh, Silicon Valley Bank needed to liquidate assets and they couldn't do so at a pace that matched the withdrawal pace of deposits. So this was the largest bank failure since the global financial crisis of 2008. And you know that, that basically was the subject of a lot of uh, speculation and rumor over the weekend. We saw uh, the FDIC, Treasury, uh, and others come out with a joint announcement over the weekend that depositors would be made whole, but that debt and equity holders may suffer losses. And when we think that the story is, is settling down, we saw on Sunday evening, Signature Bank, uh, which is a, a bank that provides services to crypto companies as well as others that is regulated by uh, New York state regulators. That was also shuttered uh, last night. So uh, the FDIC took control of Signature. Uh, they had about $110 billion in assets and a little bit less than $89 billion in deposits at the end of last year. So uh, what's interesting with Signature is that uh, as of last September, about a quarter of their deposits came from cryptocurrency sector-related companies, uh, and they had previously announced that they were going to be looking to bring that uh, bring that ratio down as we came into the new year. So, what you know, that's sort of like the banks. You know, big headlines again. Signature, like Silicon Valley Bank, uh, it was communicated that depositors would be made whole above and beyond the FDIC insurance. So, when when we think about the the risk, the risk is borne by investors. The depositors here, the companies that are relying upon these banks for banking services, uh, these banks being Silicon Valley and Signature, they are able to make payroll. They will be able to operate. And that's because uh, federal regulators have created um, the capability for them to do that. That's different than what we saw with Silvergate. So just to be very, very clear. But we did see on Friday that there were some knock-on effects. And I know you guys have been trying to keep pace with this as well. But you know, Circle, I believe, was Friday night, came out and said that roughly 3.2 or 3.3 billion of deposits were held at Silicon Valley Bank. And after that news broke, we saw that uh, USDC, the, the second largest US dollar stablecoin uh, by market cap, uh, started trading below the, the dollar peg. And then we saw many other uh, stablecoins uh, falling below the peg. Um, I believe it was Crypto Slate reported nine of 10 traded below the, the peg, uh, and only one that was trading at or above the peg was Tether. So, um, you know, there's a lot that we can go into in terms of those stable coins. So I'll pause there and, and try to pull you guys in. What what do you think? Have you ever seen uh, such, such fast moves? This is obviously, um, as you mentioned initially, it is obviously a learning experience. But what I want to do is I want to kind of bring it home and talk about crypto and how it affected crypto. Uh, going back to what you said about USDT. So um, there was obviously some fear around uh, USDC when they tweeted out that they have $3.3 billion in Silicon Valley Bank. But I think the second tweet, which kind of indirectly coincided with the actual DPEG when sort of USDC was trading at close to 80 cents on a dollar, was when Coinbase tweeted out that they are temporarily pausing all USDC to USD redemptions uh, for the weekend, right? So that's when people were like, whoa, like USDC to USD redemptions, 
halted. I need my money back. What do I do? And uh, interestingly enough, you had DAI, Frax, a lot of these other uh, decentralized stablecoins also depegging. And one of the major reasons why they also depegged is because they have a lot of USDC in their reserves, right? And so, uh, so, so what I want to quickly talk about is that when this depegging event happened, um, every DeFi person naturally just wanted to exit their position out of USDC and move to a different uh, stable asset or, or something else. And uh, just to give you an example of Curve, so Curve is a decentralized exchange which is mainly known for stable swaps. So the idea of Curve is you put in one stable coin, you get something else, you get another stable coin. And so the daily trading volume of Curve for all of March and Feb has been around less than a billion dollars, right? Uh, however, on March 11th, it was close to $7.1 billion, which has been the highest trading volume ever in, in, in Curve's existence. So that kind of tells you the, the level of panic among DeFi investors. Or even if you think about uh, Uniswap, so the, the average daily volume uh, of Uniswap is close to $6 billion. And just on March 11th, it was close to 12.5 um, uh, billion US dollars. So it kind of tells you about how people were just so actively reacting and moving money uh, to different places. So Parth, question on that. Any kind of insight into how those dApps performed during that spike um, in volume, right? Because I think historically, like particularly in traditional markets, when you have an enormous spike in, in volumes, right, it can sometimes lead to issues with the tech, right, and, and things break. Did we see anything like that where there was, you know, a lot of congestion on the network? How did that look? That's that's actually a fantastic question because a lot of times whenever you wish to convert your stable coins into something else, you go to one or two avenues, uh, places like Curve, Uniswap, um, and, and other exchanges. And so a lot of times the front end gets clogged up because you have a lot of people requesting for the same service. And so a lot of people directly interacted with the smart contract, people who were obviously more technical. Uh, but you did see some people getting denied service on some of these platforms just because of front end problems. And so the reason why I also want to um, briefly talk about what, like why it's important uh, and how big of a, a shock this is to some of the DeFi investors is that typically when you are in a bear market, when you don't have an active strategy, a lot of people tend to hold their assets or value in stable coins, right? And so now you have to act quickly in case something bad happens to USDC. And uh, I feel like, I don't know, needless to say, USDC will take some time uh, getting that confidence back uh, in amongst DeFi investors, especially since you see a lot of these liquidity pools have already swapped out USDC for DAI or FRAX or other stablecoins. Um, so that was a pretty tricky situation to be in. And I feel like it also quickly talks about stablecoins in general, because when you think about all the news stories we have covered in the past, when you think about BU BUSD or USDP, they have concerns around regulation. USDC had this one-off event. Tether is so so opaque and so big that it's it's almost scary that if something bad happens to it, you don't know what really what's going to happen. And then uh, DAI and FRAX have so much USDC dependence. So it almost makes me wonder, how do you pick the stable, stable coin? <laughs> In parts, stable coins are like one of the biggest tethers between the crypto space and the traditional finance space. And one of the, the big pieces of infrastructure that I think you could argue is now missing or doesn't really exist at the moment because Silvergate and Signature are now, you know, 
either liquidating or, or you know being taken over is these interbank networks that they had were critical to Circle and Coinbase being able to issue and redeem 24-7, 365, because we know, obviously, banking hours for traditional you know, wires through Fedwire uh, are only during you know, normal business hours, Monday through Friday, whereas stablecoins and crypto live all, all around the clock on the weekends, right? We see all the volatility this past weekend. And so things like Silvergate's Send Network or Signature had a similar Signet network that are these interbank networks where market makers can have accounts, exchanges can have accounts, and then they can move money you know, all around the clock to be able to mint and redeem these stable coins. Because if everybody has a Send account at Silvergate together, then it's just a, a ledger entry for Silvergate to say, take it from this market maker uh, and, and give it to Circle and they can mint stable coins instantly. Whereas there's now sort of a gap. And I think the question to be asked is, is there other banks that can offer some sort of a similar service? Or are we going to be left with like sort of some sort of a workaround or fragmented uh, issuing and, and redeeming uh, around the clock because that will impact stablecoin stability. I, I think we're going to see uh, solutions. I, I think there are players in the marketplace who are stepping forward trying to um, trying to fill the the space that is essentially created as as some of these other players are, are pulled out of the market. So they they may be onshore. Some of them may be offshore. Maybe some combination. Um, I, generally speaking, I think that there's a lot of use for stable coins and there are a lot of applications that, um, that, that still require 24 by seven by 365 support. So it's been an innovative ecosystem. It's an innovative industry. I think that there will be solutions that emerge as, as time unfolds again, personal opinion, but, um, I've, I've been reading a lot about what happens now that Silvergate Exchange Network is no longer uh, an option for that outside of banking hour liquidity. Uh, and yeah. some other companies are, are volunteering that they, they're looking to, to solve for that uh, opportunity. And I think like, you know, in particular with, with Silvergate and Signature, you know, the, the, and, and also Silicon Valley Bank, right? The, the news cycle has been around kind of the macro implications on the banking system and what it, you know, what the risks look like moving forward. But I, I think there, there's another risk that, you know, if you're in crypto and you're paying attention to the crypto ecosystem, you know, exists. And that is just the general kind of lack of banking options now for, you know, crypto native companies, right? So I think there's this very real operational issue associated with the stable, stable coins and stable coin issuers and being able to kind of maintain that frictionless experience kind of on, on, you know, within the blockchain world, right? But also, you know, bridging the gap into traditional finance. So that's an operational issue. But then I think beyond that, right, there's there's a whole other suite um, of companies that are not necessarily, you know, um, you know, involved in stable coins that were using these banking, these banks and their services to just facilitate, you know, whatever business they're in. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's good that, you know, these companies will be able to, to, to get their money back, right. From these banks. But I guess the question is, is where do they go? Right. Like that, that, that to me is like the most pressing question because, you know, yes, the largest companies are, will likely be fine and have multiple banking relationships and, will pretty easily be able to move, you know, their assets from one place to another. But I think this particular, in particular, the, the smaller startups, and I guess you could say crypto or just, just regular fintechs, right? You know, they don't have a ton of great options at this point, right? And so I think like, 
I, I think in the short term, it, it's an operational issue. I think longer term, like it, I, th- I could see a path where it actually inhibits, at least temporarily, the growth in the space, right? Because this is like a very foundational capability that you need to be able to to run your business. And I think it, it's basically gone or, 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 you know, starting to evaporate. Yeah, Ryan, I, I think you raise a really good point that these these banking providers were not only crypto providers. Yeah, Signature had a high concentration. Silvergate had a high concentration of, of crypto-related companies. But a lot of the stories I read over the weekend about Silicon Valley Bank were, were that it supported many different biotech companies. And when you just think about the, the startup ecosystem across the United States, it's been a very important uh, enabler of growth for these different companies. I mean, I'm sure you, like me, saw lots of videos or uh, tweets or stories about CEOs of startups talking about the need to ensure that their payroll could be processed. I mean, there are payroll processing entities that take that work with these banks as well. So it's far beyond crypto. It's, it's much more than that. But I, I do want to take a, a moment and you know, talk about what is it that for for crypto, what does this mean? You know, you, you do hear that there are entities out there who have been seeking to get banking or there are banks today like the uh, special purpose depository institutions in Wyoming that literally are building, trying to build businesses around taking deposits and not making loans. And again, we, we talk about how does a bank operate? Well, if they are investing assets and they're investing assets in what is deemed to be the proverbial uh, risk-free rate of return or backed by the full faith and credit of a government, uh, then you need to look at the, the maturity of that. So, might we see uh, some progress when it comes to those banks that are seeking access without uh, making loans? I don't know, but I did see a lot of communication around that over the weekend. Um, folks asking, why are these types of savings banks not being allowed to, to progress with a federal charter? Um, and that, that's something that we, we've just been tracking for a while. So um, who knows whether or not uh, positions change after this, this past uh, week, but something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I do have to say that the level of sophistication in DeFi is far less from what you see in a traditional in the traditional finance structure. But I think it's important to sort of point out the stark differences in how a similar situation like this, a bank run or a financial panic, would play out in, in DeFi, right? Which did kind of happen for a for a short period of time after FTX and, and BlockFi went bust. But I think in a bank run, um, you know, you have all the actors that, that they and they wish to withdraw their money and they put it, they want to put it in their pockets. There is no incentive for a person to have to keep their money in a bank. However, when you think about protocols like Aave or Compound, which are these lending protocols, as soon as liquidity leaves, the interest rates go up automatically, which is coded in the smart contract, right? Which means that loans get more expensive, but the deposits also get more lucrative, more attractive. And so then there is an incentive for a different customer profile, people who are ready to take that risk to deposit money uh, and then uh, sort of use use Aave, right? So you have, so, so a lot of investors would then use that opportunity. And that's just one point where smart contracts can almost react real time uh, or, or much faster than traditional banks. Uh, and uh, as long as you have that situation thought out, that's where you see smart contracts being more efficient. Uh, so that's one part of it. 
And then the second part is just about being transparent with the collateral, right? So in this situation, there would not be any sort of rumors on how a bank did not react quick enough to to changing rates or or the losses that may have occurred because in DeFi, it's all on-chain. So you can have people verify it on-chain. And that I think is, those are some like really big differences between um, a traditional financial structure or if you have a, a similar situation like a bank run in DeFi where people are exiting liquidity. Those are really good points because again, we point out none of us are are banking analysts. None of us are following the banking industry day in, day out. We're reacting to news that affects the industry that, that we're working with in terms of crypto. And we have grown more accustomed to being able to verify where, you know, otherwise you can look at filings that are that exist out on Edgar. You can listen to uh, reports and earnings calls. But again, you're getting snapshots, points in time, whereas the in the blockchain space, in the crypto space, you're seeing this information in real time. So you have that ability to react. I, I, I do think, though, Parth, for a moment, you know, you're talking, what, what are some of the incentives of why keep money in a bank? Or I'll say credit union as well. Not everyone's comfortable being their own bank. And of course, uh, some of the goodness that comes from that is deposits actually can help create uh, value in the community in terms of lending. So you think about the home borrowing, things like that. So, um, well, and I think there's certain assurances that come with those deposits, right? And, and part I, I completely agree with you that there are absolutely you know positive aspects to being able to codify some of these things via smart contracts. But I think it's worth noting, as we've seen in in certain instances, that there are still limitations to that because you can't possibly code for every you know situation, right? Absolutely. And so. You know, over time that will mature and they'll become more sophisticated in terms of, you know, how they behave in, in stress situations. But at the end of the day, in those applications, there is no backstop, right? Where here, you know, there was, there is, right? Which is the U.S. government. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's going to stand the, the test of time. And it's an ideological thing, <laughs> one way or yeah. the other. But it's also practical because when you think about it, Right after this happened, MakerDAO just voted on an emergency pro- proposal after these events, uh, where they have brought down daily minting of DAI, backed by USDC, from 950 million to 250 million. And they have also increased uh, the swapping fee from zero to 1% to sort of discourage people to swap out USDC for DAI. And so what, what I just want to point out is that the way, the, the speed at which DeFi reacts but I think it's just going to, I mean, it, it'll take time. So so hopefully when, when you have more sophisticated tools in DeFi, maybe in the next 30, 40 years, you, you might be able to compare uh, to, to a much uh, stronger level. On that topic, we talk about Maker and decentralized stablecoins a lot. Did this past weekend not highlight the clear linkage and reliance between DAI and FRAX on USDC and almost highlight how it is you know, basically wrapped USDC, like that's what it traded like, even though, you know, whatever, 40% of its reserves are are in USDC, it traded just alongside basically like it was the same exact asset, maybe because of, you know, being pooled in the three pool and things like that. But um, I don't know, I think it yeah. highlighted like, like you said, makers already doing certain things. Like, will we see follow on changes uh, to some of these protocols as a result of like highlighting the the heavy linkage or contingencies that they have on centralized infrastructure? Yeah. 
Well, I think like a lot of, again, like all of the concerns that are dominating the news cycle around these three banks right now, right? Like those similar risks exist in crypto, right? In terms of the level of interconnectivity between these different projects and these different coins, right? So I think like the, the risk profile to, to a certain extent looks somewhat similar when, you, when you're trying to consider those risks. And Ryan, when you, when you talk about that and phrase it that way, I, I'm interpreting, and you're not saying it, but I'm interpreting that as looking at systemic risk. Yeah. And that was that was um, referenced in both the Silicon Valley Bank shuttering and the Signature Bank shuttering. And many people might say, oh, well, was this really about crypto potentially causing systemic risk for TradFi? I, I'm not sure personally that that's the case. I think this, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it's a it's a mismatch of assets and liabilities in terms of duration and, and, and I'll call it uh, liquidity accelerated by this withdrawal rush. But I do think that you're seeing that there are dependencies and there are correlations. Now, as the federal government and different entities have come forward to communicate the, their plans for uh, ensuring that depositors are made whole, we saw that there's been some volatility in the market, uh, traditional markets up and down throughout the day. You know, crypto markets seem to be up today. And I, I would suggest that, you know, when people look at understanding the, the relationship, you can't look at each of them as independent of each other. You have to look at them and, and try to understand the relationship because the, the narratives will be out there. Oh, well, these, these are risky. Well, there's risk involved in all financial things. It's how you manage those risks and what are, what are your risk tolerances. So I, I do think that there are systemic risks to be looked at both independently and interdependently. Yeah. All right. Well, I think, you know, J Jason, as you mentioned at the top, this is a very fluid situation and it's highly, highly likely that things will have changed even between us recording this in 24 hours from now when um, it's available for, for public consumption. Um, so, you know, I, I think what, all we can say is, you know, we're closely monitoring this. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about um, when we connect next week. Um, but certainly a really interesting um, situation playing out in real time. And, and like you said, lots of lots of learnings for the industry and, and um, hopefully we'll come out the other side stronger. Um, all right, so let's switch gears a bit um, and, and talk something a little bit more uh, crypto focused. Um, so Parth, you, you know, mentioned you know ETH Denver. There was an entire um, sub conference or sub track focused on um, wallets, um, and we saw some some pretty interesting announcements last week, um, particularly the one from Coinbase. Um, do you want to just give us an overview of, of uh, what the story there is? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I think this is one of those stories which was sort of underreported and it was kind of low on the radar, but I think it's it's actually pretty big and monumental. So Coinbase in the last two, two and a half months has launched two big products. The first one is called Base, which is an Ethereum layer two uh, for developers to build application. And so some of you may remember that Coinbase in the past has tried twice to build their own blockchain, right? So once in the bear market in 2018, and then the second time in 2020, where pretty much every other centralized exchange was building their own blockchain. So you had Binance come up with uh, Binance Chain or uh, BNB, uh, and then you had other, you had FTX uh, almost owning Solana back then. And so now that they, now that Coinbase has base out, they obviously have, have money to support developers to build uh, a few viral applications. 
Uh, and that's exactly how you get more user stickiness, right? So the idea is, and so this is again my prediction, but I think Base will be focusing a lot on building more applications which are geared towards payments or or maybe towards an NFT platform. But now that they have sort of their own land to build applications on, so you will see more um, activity development on there. So that's product number one. Uh, and then the second one, which is the one that you briefly spoke about, is called Wallet as a Service. So Coinbase announced this thing called Wallet as a Service, which is just a set of developer tools uh, which any developer can use to embed a custom wallet in their website or their application. So Coinbase's thesis is that many banks or companies or, or even social media applications would want people to store uh, crypto without having their own crypto wallet, right? And so wallet as a service kind of enables that. And what's really interesting to me is that using this these set of APIs, you can actually build a self-custodial wallet or you could choose to build a completely custodial wallet, right? So it's super flexible. So think about what Stripe uh, did for payments. And so Coinbase is trying to do something similar, uh, but in crypto, right? And so their idea is that if you wish to onboard millions, you don't sort of assume that everyone has a crypto wallet. And so you just want this, this wallet to show up on the application or the website. So that's kind of the TLDR of uh, both the announcements. But I think it's a really smart move because they are trying to play, uh, they're, they're trying to create this whole supply and demand system with Base and Wallet as a service, right? So you have Base, which is a chain, which brings in activity into Web3 applications. And then you have Wallet as a service, which is another offering that demands for uh, different applications. Well, when and you so, think about it, I think they're getting pretty close to like full stack now, right? I mean, is there any capability that they're not really offering? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and, yeah. and and one like interesting uh, observation is that they also have this thing called semi-custodial wallet, which kind of, which they pioneered. So their idea is that you, a lot of people do not want to go through the process of storing their seed phrase. Uh, or, or putting it on a piece of paper and then losing that piece of paper. So you still have Coinbase as a fallback. So you use this technology called MPC, where you could do a three of five. So you have three keys, but then two keys are uh, on, on uh, owned by Coinbase. And so their idea is to really make transactions much easier, make onboarding much easier. Um, so that's the that's the gist of it. Are there limitations in terms of the you know asset supportability, right? Because I, I think like when you think about custodial. Um, versus non-custodial, right? They, they, they have the, so base is an Ethereum um, L2, but for their wallet as a service, you can custody any of the assets which are supported on the Coinbase um, custody exchange. Which so are supported. That, that was, I guess, the question. So there would theoretically be assets that would, wouldn't be supported. Right, exactly. So I think Coinbase as of now supports close to 200 assets. So you okay. get access to all 200 of them. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so those are, I mean, I feel like these are two stories which were slightly underreported. But I also feel like a lot of people are now appreciating the fact that you have the eject button in a lot of these applications. So even if you wish to self-custody, you have that optionality. Like even at ETH10, where we were having a bunch of discussions, but there is this sort of soft consensus that centralized exchanges are are 100% needed. That's probably the result of what we've experienced in the market re recently with FTX and some of the other failures is we saw flight of capital from those centralized providers 
into self-custodied wallets largely, right? And so I think it, it makes sense, I guess, right, that, that the exchanges are thinking about this and, and making a more kind of um, integrated experience between custodying assets with them versus self-custodying assets and, and kind of enhancing the user experience, probably also to to improve the stickiness of those assets, right? Because I think, it, you know, self-custody to, to some extent presents a little bit of a threat to their business model, right? And so um, I think if you offer the optionality, you'll probably have adoption that is a little bit of both, depending on what the, the user's um, appetite is for self-custody and the risk reward associated with that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, I, I think, you know, uh, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to we, we want to talk more about account abstraction. Maybe that's a that's a conversation for a different day. But it, it is exciting to see more more development on the wallet front. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, I think it's to the benefit of uh, the user base. So, you know, I think we always we always welcome these types of these types of uh, announcements. Um but I think that's that's it for today. This was a lot. Um, like I said, we're going to be uh, frantically monitoring the ecosystem for the next seven days until we meet again. Um, but in the meantime, you know, thanks you guys for the discussion, and thanks everyone uh, for for tuning in. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. Have a good rest of your week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.